the outer pericolent periscope. Pericope is uh, a term that's used for studying the Bible. Basically, means the surrounding text, then the wider text, and the whole Bible. How does that passage fit in? So, if you think a passage says something, one little verse, for example, that is different than the rest of Scripture, you're probably interpreting it wrong. So, first, you might look, maybe say, you believe you're reading a verse, maybe look at the whole chapter around it, and then maybe look at the whole book around it. Then see, like if it's a writing of Paul, what is all the things Paul said? And then what is all the things that the New Testament said? And what is all the things the Bible said? So we look at it in larger and larger context to make sure we're getting the right interpretation. Then the, the last thing we do then is now we try to see how it applies to us in our own lives. So unfortunately, a lot of times we do the reverse of that. We don't read. We read the verse and say, well, what do you think about that verse, Mark? Oh, I think this, when I read it up with first blush, with no looking at anything else here, what it makes me feel like. It's the wrong way to do it. We need to say, what was the author saying? What did it mean to the first audience? What does it mean in context with the rest of Scripture? And then we can say, what does that mean to us today? I haven't reviewed that for a little while, so I had to throw that in there. So now I'm going to read Romans 13, 1 through 7, and then we'll take a look at it. Here's what it says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. If you have no fear of the one who is in authority, then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of your conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So, we have to say first, what did the author mean by that? And what did it mean to the original audience? Now, before I get to that, there's been some discussion how broadly this applies. I believe that Paul is writing specifically about a Christian's relationship to their government, a secular government. Um, that doesn't mean it cannot apply to other situations, but I think that's primarily what he's writing to. So who's he writing to? Who is Paul writing to in the book of Romans? Who is Paul writing to in the letter to the Romans? Maybe I'll put it that way. Christians in Rome, yes. So he's writing to some people that have really no authority and really no say in the matters of state. So Rome was a republic, but it was also an empire, right? So you had an emperor who basically ruled from the top down, and, and they, they did have senators, but the average person, it wasn't like today where you go on your website and you could send an email to John Thune or your other senators or congressmen or whoever you want to, and maybe even get a response. Not the case so much in Rome. Most, very few 
average people would ever have an opportunity to speak to their leaders. And certainly not in a way where they could probably suggest, here are some changes I think you should make to the government. There were no school board meetings, there was no city council meetings, and then, like I said, no calling the senator on the phone to yell at some board staff person that has, you know, about a current bill before the senator or something like that. The people were not empowered, in other words. And yet, with no power, with being subject, all rights, let every person be subject to the government authorities. In other words, obey the laws, follow the commands, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So this concept that God delegates authority of his to human government goes all the way back really early into the Bible. I'm not going to go all the way back, but I'm going to go kind of, I guess you could call it the middle point, in Daniel, because Daniel had some good writings about this. So I'm going to go through a couple of Daniel's writings. First from Daniel 2, 20 and 21. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Then in Daniel 4.17, he said this, the, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers that the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. Sometimes we don't like to think of ourselves as the lowliest of men, but in the scheme of things in the government, most of us are kind of down there a bit. We're just a mere voter in our country, I guess. But then in, in Daniel 5.21, it's telling about what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. It says he was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. Is there any question in our mind that the Bible teaches that God is the one who puts people in authority? Does that mean our vote doesn't count? No. It means that he uses the means he uses to put who he's going to put into power. And that's difficult for us, especially if someone in leadership is not the person we chose or voted for or would have wanted. And yet, Scripture teaches that. That God has his reasons we may not understand, but the authority is there because God gave it. Then in Romans 13, verse 2, he continues, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So this is pretty straightforward. People of God should understand that God has given authority to people to rule in government. It's throughout all of Scripture. It's, it's reinforced for us in the New Testament, both by Paul and by Peter, uh, and Jesus himself. Now, John Lennon famously imagined, right? Remember the Imagine song? He imagined a world without any religious authorities, right? Or even religion. He imagined no country. He imagined no possessions. He imagined 
all these things, and somehow in his mind, that means kumbaya, right? Everyone's going to get along. There's going to be this great brotherhood. He says there will be no greed or hunger. If we just took down all of the institutions that we had built up. If only the institutions of religion and state were gone, Lenin thought the world would be a utopia. But that isn't what happens, is it? Remove institutions and see what happens. Look at what happens when the family is not considered to be a sacred unit by many people. Where fathers and mothers hold dear their responsibilities and the children respect and obey. Imagine there's no government at all to restrain people from anarchy and evil. Imagine the police stand down. It's easy if you try. All you have to do is turn on the news and you'll see what happens. I'd like someone to write, write, take his song and put it with some of the current shots of these cities burning and, and let John Lennon sing Imagine with all that. Because that's what happens. You take away all those institutions and that is what you get. He thought that without any rules or countries or religion or institutes that people would just get along. The truth is that what John imagined, John Lennon would imagine, was impossible. A world where there's no structures or institutions or government actually shows us what hell would be like. And we know from scripture that the first one who ever imagined there were no institutions was Satan himself. He imagined the world of no authority under God. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, I know it's a simple illustration, and I know I've used it often, but it just works so well uh, that if you're going the speed limit, you don't have to worry when you pass a highway patrolman that's parked in the median, do you? Great question. Uh, and I know I've used that illustration, but it's, it's just a simple one to tell us the truth. If you're doing the right thing, you're not looking over your shoulder to see who's going to catch you for doing that wrong. And this is what it tells us. In scripture, that authority, there is a proper authority that God grants to the government. And what is the main purpose of government? According to scripture, not just here, but throughout scripture, the main purpose of government is to bear the sword. And that really means two different things. It means protection. The king would be responsible to keep his people safe. The king was the one that led the battle. Remember that in the Old Testament? And what happened to David when he forgot that role of his? Then the second thing the sword represents is justice. To see that, you know, we have the symbol of justice with the, the lady with the scales, you know, the blindfold and all that. In those days, a symbol of justice was the sword. One thing that's important to understand here, Paul didn't see this kind of division in life between sacred and secular. Well, today I'm at church, but tomorrow I go to work, so I'm secular. I'm not the same person. Paul saw all of life under God's authority, even people who do not acknowledge God, even kings, even governors, even presidents, 
They're under God's authority whether they will acknowledge it or not. And therefore, they are responsible to do those things that God has determined is within their what happens when they get outside of their lane? We see this confusion right now, right? Where governors or state legislatures are telling people in some states you can't go worship at churches. The pastors and the congregations that are saying no, we're told I got this. I'm going to get to that in a little bit. Uh, why, when, when it's okay uh, to maybe um, push back against the government. But you can see how confusing that is. If you've ever read or seen any of the Three Musketeers, for example, you see that uh, the cardinal had as much power as the king. You know, it was a problem. You know, somehow the church and the state, they were not staying in their lanes, neither one. The state was uh, telling the church what to do. The church was telling the state what to do. It was really a big mixed up mess. And it was all about power. But Paul didn't see this division. He did see the lanes, but he didn't see he didn't see that everything's under God's authority. So whether the Christian, the king or a leader is a Christian or even acknowledges God, he's still subject to God, as Nebuchadnezzar found out. And many others have found out. Now, we have a democratic republic. We elect our leaders. And that means that not only do those leaders remain subject to God, in a sense they're subject to us, but also we, because we elect them, are subject to God. And, and once they are elected, once the laws have been passed, we're to be obedient and respectful to them. But when it comes time to vote for them, we also bear a responsibility to do the best job we can to elect people who have shown that they can properly wield that God-given authority, that they stay in the land. If leaders in government are a servant of God, avengers who carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, if that's the two main things the Bible teaches us the government is supposed to do, then those are things that we should consider when we vote. And other than those two main things, I don't see many other authorities that God gives to government. Now, the citizenry can delegate more power to the government, but that's that's the thing, the two things that God most is concerned with as far as government. That they do their job of protecting people, including the most vulnerable, and that they make sure that justice is being done. So there's all these other issues out there, but they're all secondary to those two main things. Each leader is supposed to be serving God and bearing the sword. Again, the sword represents protection. The government has a job to protect. It also represents justice, the courts and the law. So since we have this responsibility that we have to vote, consider those two things. If the government is not doing those two things well, if it's not protecting and it's not doing justice well, then that should affect our vote. Does the government bear the sword in a way that protects the citizens, and especially the most vulnerable? And does the government bear the sword in seeing that evildoers are brought to justice and that victims are made whole? Those are the God-given authorities of government. And if anyone in government at any level is not defending people from violence, especially the weakest ones, and if justice is not being served, then that's a bad government. You know, Peter writes as well about submission to authority in uh, 1 Peter 2.13, 
He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We're going to continue on now on verse 5, Romans 13, 5. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So we obey the law not only because we're afraid of getting caught and receiving some kind of punishment, but it ought to be the case for believers that our conscience would bother us if we are doing the wrong. Our conscience should bother us if we're doing the wrong thing. If your conscience doesn't bother you when you're doing the wrong thing, then you have some work to do, right? If you've gotten callous to doing the wrong thing where it doesn't bother you, you have some work to do. You need to seek God and ask that He would restore the Holy Spirit's full presence to you so that you would feel the godly sorrow over your sins that leads to repentance. So we should honor those authority over us, whether it's in the, in the home, whether it's in the church, whether it's in the government, or whether it's at work. Those are the things we do because we understand that God delegates that authority over us. Verse 6, for because of this you also pay taxes of them. The authority of the minister says taxes. Does that say that in yours too? Okay, so what else do we know about what Jesus taught about paying taxes. You remember the trick they tried to play on him? Totally a political society, just like we are today, right? You try to trick someone into saying something, they came to Jesus, they had uh, the question that they knew, no matter how he answered it, they would trap him. And they said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Because he, they knew if he said yes, he would offend a whole group of Jews that didn't believe that they should have to do that. And if he said no, they could go to the former Romans and say, hey, you've got a guy out here that's a rebel against paying taxes, you need to deal with him. Either way, they thought we're going to win on this one. But what was Jesus' response? He said, bring me a coin. Whose picture is on the coin? George Washington. Caesar, right? Caesar's imprint was on the money. Okay? He said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God. Caesar's imprint was on the money, whose imprint is on me? If you were in Mark's Sunday school class, you could know the answer. Is that according to Genesis 1.26, we are made in God's own image. Render unto God what is God. Your whole self belongs to him. But pay your taxes as well. As I was studying this passage, I, I saw one commentator, he said how he had been convicted by the Holy Spirit on this. That one year he filled out his taxes and he wrote on the, uh, being very clever on the envelope, he put the in, infernal revenue service. And, uh, 
later on felt convicted over that, but that uh, he wasn't paying joyfully, certainly, but begrudgingly. And this is a tricky one for us, right? We do live in a, in a world where we can we can call those Congress people, we can call our senators, and we can vent on Facebook about how the government is spending the money. But right here it's saying that we're to render to Caesars what is Caesars. We are to pay taxes because, Paul writes, the authorities are ministers of God. What? What about the ones who don't worship God? What about the ones who seem to hate God? Are they ministers of God? They are. Because God has delegated some of his authority to imperfect people. And we are to respect that. So we're to pay to all what is owed them taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. You know, about respect, this is one I think the church can lead the way on, hopefully, and, and teach the world what respect looks like. Because it's not happening much right now. How can you disagree with current leadership or former leadership, whatever else? and still be respectful, understanding that that person is a person that God has appointed them to lead. Now, the question comes up, where we look at, I mentioned earlier, some of these states where people feel compelled to resist their governor and go to have a church service, at, and, and uh, this is some times where maybe we need to resist. So I've, I've got three times here uh, if you could put that up. So the first one is, the first time we can resist the government is if we are asked to violate a command of God. If we're asked to violate a command of God, a clear command of Scripture, then, and the law says you can't do this or you must do this, and it violates God's command, then we must resist. Acts 4.17 in 20, it gives us an example of this with Peter and John. It says, in order that it may spread no further by the people, let us warn them. These are the officials telling Peter and John to speak no more in his name. And they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John asked them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They're, they had a clear command from Christ. They had a clear command from God. And they were to go and preach the word of God. And that was one situation where they said we must resist the command. The second time we have to resist is if we're asked to do an immoral act. This is another easy, military comes up a lot for me because it seems like an easy context of the chain of command, right? Now, uh, if you're in the military and you've got an inspection coming up and there's some problems and your immediate leader says, I need you to lie and write this down so we do okay on the inspection, you know, make sure you protect me here. That would be lying, right, to protect someone you change math. That's an immoral act. God doesn't tell us we have to obey the authority when they ask us to do you may be surprised to hear this, but James Bond is not a Christian. 
God doesn't say it because you're serving your country, if you don't commit adultery all the world, it'll be okay. No, we cannot do immoral acts that our government or anyone else would ask us to do that's in authority over us. Because once they've done that, they have violated the proper authority God gave them. So we can't do that. The third thing is we can't go against our conscience. And I believe that the churches that are deciding whether to have service or not in violation of government's government order, in my opinion, this is a conscience issue. Um, and your conscience should be guided by God's word as well. But we have to be careful. So I've given an example of John MacArthur and others that have said, no, we're going to have the service, and they're being taken to court week after week, and, and it's a big issue all the time. And then there's other uh, Christians that have said, you know, we feel like we have to honor our government here. And, uh, you know, you have to follow your conscience on this. And that, that's... And we need to respect other people who are also following their conscience in a very difficult situation where you have to make that decision. Another example of that is a conscientious objector. You know, like we, you've, you've known about this, so someone gets uh, drafted, usually conscientious, conscientious objectors don't usually enlist on their own, do they, Mark? I don't know, you were recruited. But if they were drafted and they said, you know, I, don't, I can't kill another person because of my you know, I, I think that we have to seek the Lord to find ways that we can uh, obey Him in our conscience and also stay respectful. So to kind of wrap this up, um, when we do the right thing and it goes against what the world says we ought to do, we may get persecuted for it. And Peter writes about this that we should be zealous for what is good. Um, and let me read what he puts in 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. He says this. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for than by doing than for doing evil. So if the government's going to arrest you and throw you in jail, Paul, Peter's saying, then let it be because you're honoring Christ. Don't let it be because you follow, you just disobeyed a law that you could have obeyed. All right? But I think it's interesting, too, and we need to remember this. I mentioned a moment ago about respect. That last verse of chapters, uh, or Romans chapter 13, verse 7, the last verse of our main passage, said, respect to whom respect is owed. And now Peter is saying, when, and this is a, a verse that's used a lot by apologists who, who say, hey, you need to practice the, the art of apologetics, which is defending you know, the truth of the Bible. And they will use 1 Peter 3.15 a lot for that. Um, but a lot of times people forget that last part of that verse. And it says, 
Yet do it with gentleness and respect. If whatever your passion is in the gospel, if there's this topic that you care dearly about, and it's leading you to be harsh or rude to people, instead of doing it with gentleness and respect, you've got some work to do. People walk away from a conversation with you where you felt strongly about something in the Word of God and they think, wow, that person pretty harsh. Got some work to do. And I would say, in a sense, we all have work to do because we're in a world right now that's very contentious. You know, people have such an easy thing with text messaging and all these ways you can, you can fire something off so, so easy. So much easier to say something rude to Scott over a text if I was done. I would have. I wouldn't be like that today. But it, it's so easy to do that. We need to temper our words. We need to do that with gentleness and respect. Because that is how we show the world how we're supposed to live. We have an opportunity to do that as much as any time the church has in today's world. Right now, there's division. And we can have we can be that light. But we won't be a good light if we rebuke everybody who disagrees with us just without any graciousness or gentleness or respect. So let's work on that. And I know there's, I mentioned it a week or two ago, and I know there's still strife in our own community about COVID regulations and other issues that are happening. And people are at each other's necks. How are we going to handle ourselves? How about with gentleness and respect? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, as we consider how it is that we live this out in light of what Paul was writing, he wrote to a church who had no power. We as a church that have the power to vote and to speak our minds against the government if we want, we have to struggle, Lord, how to apply that. How do we respect the authority that you have put over us? And yet, when is it time, Lord, that we must obey God rather than men? Lord, I pray that you would help us through your word and by the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives to be a people of discernment who can know the difference. And that we would be able to do it, Lord, All right.